This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Let's just jump right into it. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your organization and uh, what you're passionate about? Yeah, uh, my name's Don Marty and I am VP of Ecosystem Innovation for Cafe Media. And the thing, that, uh, the thing that I'm into is uh, helping small and medium-sized web publishers adapt to the future of web advertising uh, at, after uh, the third-party cookie and with uh, the growth of, uh, of privacy technology and regulations. So your your audience or your customers are SMEs typically? Yes. Well, Cafe Media is um, a company that provides ad services on 3,000 different independent websites. So if you're an SME or a major brand that is interested in reaching real people who have um, high engagement with niche content, then uh, Cafe Media is a way to do that. So are you uh, sort of like an adjunct to something like Google AdWords or ads, or are you, uh, do you use them or where, where do you fit in the, in the chain? We fit in the chain of uh, helping the publisher um, maximize their uh, advertising experience. And part of that is we enable brands um, and uh, any advertiser really to uh, reach the audience of all those uh, niche sites that have uh, that have uh, all those real engaged people on them. Okay, so if I were so I, if I were an SME and I wanted to reach those people who um, traverse those sites, then I would come to you directly. I wouldn't have to go through something else. I'd just call you up and say, hey, I need help talking to, I don't know, bulldog owners or something like that, and you'd be able to provide that service? Absolutely. We can we can do that direct um, type of ad placement, um, but at the same time, uh, we understand that a lot of advertising is placed in a very automated way uh, through programmatic advertising. And so from the point of view of the independent web publisher, you need to be able to facilitate uh, getting direct sold ads. And you also need to be able to work with those ads that are placed programmatically. So optimizing that for the publisher is a really big challenge, especially as browsers change their privacy features to limit the extent to which people can be tracked from one site to another. Right. So that's a, that's a, that's a good question. So let's say I am, I'm, I'm selling a product that 
talks to bulldog owners, right? I want to reach them. Would I do Google ads as well as you, or would you guys be the full stop shop? I could say, okay, I want, I need to sell this dog toy. Uh, and I would just come to you guys and say, Hey, I need to sell this dog toy. Tell me how to do it. Well, we're not really in the, in the business of telling you how to do it. We're not, we're not an ad agency. And so, um, we're the, the ad, um, service provider for the publishers that if you were working with an agency, um, then we would be a significant part of that, uh, of that puzzle. So let's say, let's say you're the brand marketer and you say, uh, I've got this product. This is the kind of people that I want to reach with it. Um, then your agency is going to say, well, there are different kinds of ads that you could be buying. You could be buying search ads. Uh, you can be buying um, uh, ads on TV. You could be buying bus benches. And one of the best ways to reach people is on the niche content sites where they um, trust the, the web publisher to give them some good content. So how do you map that that advertisers need to reach an audience with what kind of sites are available to run ads on. And that's, that's a big, that's a big question. And there are a whole lot of companies involved in it. And so um, the, the questions for that um, for there, there are a lot of questions for, for a brand marketer that's in that situation. Right. So you, you, so you're saying you're on the other side of the equation. You're the ones who are representing the, the, the little blogger. So the blogger who writes stuff about bulldogs and has an audience of bulldog owners, you'd be representing that blogger. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And small sites don't have the technical resources or the sales team to go out to yeah. every brand that might have uh, an ad that, that, um, that uh, is intended for their audience. And so um, in order to make it feasible for those small and medium-sized sites to uh, get the highest value and most creative ads, then uh, we can, we can um, aggregate, uh, or, or we, can, we can make an ad placement that'll, that'll reach people on, on the right site. Awesome. So when you say small, how small do you mean? I mean, I mean, what's your minimum number of visitors that you're looking for to, to, to get into your network? Um, it's not, it's definitely not a super small personal blog, but you don't have to be a, um, a, a company with multiple employees either. There are certainly a lot of individual content creators who can be, um, who, who can run very successful, uh, uh, sites with uh, with Cafe Media, and that's that's what's really exciting about the open web as an advertising medium is that if you're an expert in a particular niche content area, you don't need to have a big team of distribution people or developers or ad ops or ad sales, you can really focus on 
making the content that best connects with your audience and then uh, use the available services to fill in the, the advertising side. Okay, so let's say I'm a, I am a blogger and I have a niche product and I'm, or not a niche market and I have a, a certain audience. Like what's the smallest audience that you guys work with typically? Um, there's an exact number on, on the, the site. There's, a, there's an AdThrive site that has the current number on it. Um, uh, I would, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link for the show notes. And uh, just in case somebody's listening to this later, um, we'll put in a link with uh, the numbers for uh, where you would need to be to be a good candidate. Sure. Now, I'm just wondering, like, generally, is it like 500, 1,000, 50? It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. But, but it's, okay. it's, it's, you, it's, I, I, I don't want to quote the exact number as of today, because I don't know when people are going to be listening to podcasts and when, the, and, um, and what the number is going to be in the, in the near future. But a, a reasonably successful single person blog is definitely in the, uh, in the, uh, in the target size. Okay. Well, I was just trying to think about like, wh when would be the right time for somebody to start engaging with you, right? So I've already got it. I've got as an audience, I've got a small audience. Um, there's a certain point in time where, where I engage with you and then you can, you can sort of do those ad placements and sort of take, take a hand holding approach to taking that person further along. Cause you hear, is that, is that basically how you operate? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a very detailed uh, on onboarding process where uh, Cafe Media looks at the web design that's um, that's uh, in place on uh, the blogger's uh, site and looks for anything that might be an issue with getting the ad impressions through. Um, uh, can actually log in and place the required JavaScript code on the site. So it's a really um, high support environment and uh, it it really has to be because a lot of content creators want to include uh, really nice features on their sites like responsive layouts or uh, interactive features and making all that, um, that nice layout work productively with ads in place on the page is uh, an interesting development problem. And of course it can be sometimes uh, frustrating for the user. There are people who will go to a site and they'll try to open it on a phone that's different from the devices that the, that the uh, site owner has tested it on. And the ad will pop up in just the wrong place to keep them from actually seeing the content. So that's a, that's a constant uh, uh, area where, um, where how a site works with the ads needs to be tested and debugged and optimized. Well, hasn't the, but hasn't the blogging world sort of settled now on WordPress? It's like they're, they kind of use WordPress for sort of much, pretty much everything, even big, small, medium-sized sites. Everyone just uses the same thing. So oh, yeah. it's yeah. it's relatively easy to sort of plug into that environment. Yeah. Yeah. Word, WordPress so is by far the most common platform. And uh, one of the, the, um, the positive aspects of having a common platform like that is that there are 
uh, a lot of plugins and and uh, interesting features that you can uh, bring into place. So, as a uh, an individual content creator with an expertise in some field that is not web development, then you can get yourself set up with a productive uh, WordPress environment um, pretty quickly. Sorry, I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about blogging is that it's a super, super crowded space, right? I mean, it's been around for what, 20 years now? And I keep hearing stories about people still being extremely successful blogging. And I don't know, I still don't know how they, how they do it. I mean, do you do you have some like some some stories of things like that that have, that have occurred that you could talk about? Oh, I I think that that the infrastructure and the business side for blogging can be a big uh, a big differentiator. Um, there are people who um, who have uh, developed um, possibly incorrect impressions about the the viability of um, ad-supported blogs as a business model based on having uh, had bad experiences with setting up the ads in a particular way. And there are, there, there are many, many options for how you can make a, a blogging business model work. And most of those options don't have a whole lot of really successful blogs using them. But of course, as you mentioned, there are many, many blogs out there. So for every business model, there's going to be some blog somewhere that's, uh, that's doing well with it. So it's really hard to, it's hard to generalize. So based on your, your current customer set, is there like a set of criteria, which, you know, the successful bloggers use to, to be, be, become successful bloggers, to be able to get into that, that range where they can continue to grow their site. I mean, what, what do they do? Is it like uh, publishing on a regular basis, having a specific niche? Is there uh, some criteria that makes some blogs more, more uh, popular than others? I think a lot of it has to do with the individual expertise of the person. Um, so if you just go into blogging with a formula of how to have a successful blog, uh, you may not stand out as much as someone who goes into it with a lot of knowledge about a particular area. And so there's this, this kind of disconnect between people who have the unique expertise that they could use to build an audience and then um, the business decisions and partnership decisions that you have to make in order to support that, um, that blog as a business. So Cafe Media is really there to handle all the, the advertising nerd stuff for people who have a significant expertise and connect with a, a unique audience. Right. Cause they don't need the, they don't need to know that part. They just need to know that sort of like the niche that they're in. And you're saying that the more specific the niche is the better, because then you can actually get more targeted advertising. 
Well, the the placement of the ad on the content is the the or or matching which ad goes onto which piece of content is the area that's going through a major set of changes right now. So historically, there's been this system based on third-party cookies where every time you go to a different website, the, your browser will um, share some little bit of information about you with some of the third-party services that have a script or a pixel on that site. So the classic example is the person who goes shopping for sneakers and a company, a third-party company happens to have a tracking pixel on the sneaker uh, retail site. And then based on a cookie that's set there on the shopping site, then um, your browser will stick up its hand and say, hey, I see this, this, this person is ID number such and such, and you can show them the ads that are uh, matched to the sneaker intenders. And so um, in the past, that's been a way that a lot of sites about whatever topic would be able to get higher paying ads because some fraction of their audience comes in with a cookie saying, hey, show an ad to this person because they're a member of this group of people who are shopping for a thing. And the right, challenge- so it's, it's in the demographic based on that. So I see the cookie, the cookie says this guy is looking for sneakers. So it's gonna show a sneaker ad, even if the, the site itself has nothing to do with sneakers. Right, right. And that's um, a, a former coworker of mine who's working on uh, uh, version control systems for uh, enterprise software development, um, happened to see a version control ad on a My Little Pony fan site. So there's nothing about the content. <laughs> the site. I've seen those kind of things and it just seems so jarring because you, you know you're being like, this is specifically targeted because you know this is something you're interested in, but it has nothing to do with the site. Right, right. And, and of course, that leads to some of the problems that we've seen in today's uh, ad targeting system, which is where low value or deceptive sites can sell high value ads. So um, the easiest and the easiest dishonest way to make money on the web is get a Wall Street Journal subscription, scrape the paywalled articles, make your own version and stick it up there. And there are a bunch of these scraper sites out there that are pulling in high value ads from, um, from legit brands. And because of the presence of scraper sites in the market, it tends to push down the value of advertising to all sites. So web ads are placed in an extremely fast moving auction. 
So your, your um, uh, empty ad slots on a page when it first uh, shows up, uh, those, are, those are being auctioned off to see which, which ad campaign can, can pay the most to get an ad in front of you in that slot. And as long as we have low value scraper sites, fraud sites, um, uh, brand unsafe sites, pirate sites, whatever, um, participating in those auctions, then the value of ads is pulled down by what those dishonest sites are willing to accept. So I think, I think we're, we're going to see a shift away from some of that unlimited ad targeting uh, and toward uh, an ad system where sites that get um, more engagement from their users uh, are able to do better in the ad market. So, so you're saying that that um, let's see if I can get this straight. So you're saying that the ads are not going to be coming. I mean, I, I, I these sites, but aren't these sites sort of being punted to by Google because someone's just doing it? Obviously, they're using Google or Facebook to get to these sites because if you look at the, you know, the incoming links, you know, ninety percent or eighty percent is Google and and Facebook. So are are they driving? Aren't they driving people to these sites? Are they driving people to these scraper sites? And I'm I'm assuming they're working to stop people from going to these scraper sites. Oh, that's that's one of the most interesting questions in the economics of advertising. Because if you look at it from the point of view of a big intermediary company like Google, their economic interest is in keeping the value of the content low. Uh, as exactly. long as, yes, as long as they're able to get a valuable eyeball on a super cheap site, they're able to increase the fraction of ad revenue that they can pull in. So I, I think thinking backward, thinking, thinking back to the origin of Google, um, when Google first got going, the biggest search engine was AltaVista. And AltaVista- I remember was, those guys. Yep. AltaVista was running on these big deluxe digital Unix high-end machines. And digital uh, originally started Alta Vista as a way to show off the power of their of their digital Unix platform. So Alta Vista, big expensive digital Unix machines, relatively low, relatively low profit for Alta Vista as a service. What Google came along with, when Google was still google.stanford.edu. They started building this thing on ordinary PC parts. So by the time they got Google up to the point of being a company, they didn't have a digital Unix server at all. What they had was a cheap rack full of janky PC motherboards piled up on shelves 
They didn't even buy cases for them. So Google takes a low value input as in whatever cheap PC parts you can get at Fry's and builds a higher value output on top of that. So of course, Fry's is no more. Today, Google is ordering processors in bulk from Intel and building their generic machines out of those instead of, of off-the-shelf motherboards. Yeah, but at the, uh, at the base, the there's still the a, it's still just a bunch of generic machines, right? Right. right. The at the base the level, it's still the same thing. Right. The principle is the same, and their principle in dealing with content is very similar. So instead of having a few high trust um, web brands that advertisers are willing to pay a premium to get on because they know they have a trust for the audience, the Google model is to try to shift as much ad revenue as possible to cheaper sites where you can get the users that you want at the lowest possible price. So that's where the tension comes in between the web publisher and the web advertising intermediate because the publisher, all the value for the publisher is in access to a particular audience. The value for the intermediary is in leaking the publisher's audience so that the intermediary can get them in other places. And today with third-party cookies, you've got this highly pro-intermediary advertising system where uh, you're in a constant um, uh, struggle with intermediaries to keep your audience data from, um, from leaking and making your ad impressions less valuable. Absolutely. Now, that's, that's kind of the subtext of what everyone is, is talking about with web privacy. And um, a, lot of, a lot of the discussions about what's going to come next after the third-party cookie are about, about privacy this and privacy that. But really, it's everyone uh, maneuvering for a better position to keep or increase their market power on that audience data. Yeah, this might be a little controversial, but yeah, I found that Google ads or those kind of ads for these, at these intermediaries don't work at all, at least from my, from my perspective. I've tried them and nothing works. And I know a lot of people who have sort of given up on it because they want to use um, some other method. I mean, what is there something, are those ads effective for anybody other than the big brands who can spend a ton of money? Well, the, the way that, that advertising actually works is by carrying an economic signal about the intent of an advertiser to engage with the market. And so why do all car commercials look the same? And every car commercial is somebody driving a car down a curvy, scenic mountain road, right? I could shoot that commercial in a 1977 Plymouth Ferrari. Any car will do this. And 
I think he just so, photoshopped the car in. Yeah. He's the same. He's the same commercial. Just photoshopped the car in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get the get the Hot Wheels version of the car and and do it on a on a, a toy layout. I don't know. Um, it's it's not it's not like advertising carries a lot of unique information generally. So if every car commercial is the same, then why do advertisers run them? And they're, they're actually not all the same, but enough of them are the same that it makes it an interesting economic question. All right. So if all these commercials are the same, why does the car brand invest in the commercial? And the reason is they're saying this cost us money to do. So they're, they're putting up a hard to fake message saying, if test driving this car was a waste of your time, then it would have been a waste of our money to rent a helicopter and make this 30 second movie about it and then pay for the TV time. So the wow, adver- that's the an adver- interesting, interesting. So the, the, the fact that they've invested in all of this money to make the ad and, and show the ad shows that, you know, Hey, we've, 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 inve- we've got some skin in the game here. You should do something about it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And Rory Sutherland at, uh, at Ogilvy has made this point uh, fairly often. He's, he's says that he compares it to uh, a horse owner betting on their own horse. So if you see, if you go to the track mm-hmm. and you see that um, the owner is betting a bunch of money on their own horse, well, they know more about that horse than you do. Um, a really good example is power tools. And um, of course, people who work a lot with power tools, people in the building trade, they are always talking and comparing their tools. So they get in an argument at lunch about Makita versus DeWalt or whatever. So there's a lot of it's like the Windows versus Apple uh, or Android versus iPhone <laughs> arguments, right? They're like sure, almost like sure, religious sure. argument for these things. Right, right. And <laughs> computer programmers do that with with um, with uh, IT tools as well. But that's that's a whole other field. the 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 power tools one is interesting because if there's this whole community of practice that's really good at establishing a reputation for the product then why is there slick advertising for Makita and DeWalt? And the answer is that those brands can take a position on on what they believe the future reputation of that product to be. So if, let's say, DeWalt has mostly cordless drills. They come out with a new reciprocating saw. Everyone's got the Milwaukee reciprocating saw. They don't know if the DeWalt one's going to be any good. If DeWalt buys a two-page spread in fine home building, then they're saying, we believe this product is going to do well in 
the reputation network. And if we're releasing a crappy product with big advertising, then we have, then we will have wasted a bunch of money. So that is so extremely this, interesting. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I guess, I guess that's, that's how it works out. I mean, I, I never thought of advertising in that, in that way, but is that, is that what the owners would think? Or is that, that's just what the advertisers think. It's like, here's how, here we're investing in this brand because we, we believe in it. And that's why we're spending so much money running these ads. Yeah. And that's, the, that's the, the, um, that's the part about advertising that is extremely hard to capture in, um, in, in a web advertisement because as an individual, if you see an ad on a page, you don't know, is this a big buy or is somebody just targeting me because they know I'm the idiot who is not part of the community of practice and will buy the crappy product uh, that ends up having a low reputation. So, so the, the math of online signal or, or the math of, of signaling in advertising is way more complicated and way more interesting than direct response rates. Um, but so far, web advertising has not really had the 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 signaling story down yet. Is it as I I mean I've I, I used to work at, with Yahoo um, like 10, 15 years ago, and they were always talking about how advertising, you know, the rate of, of being able, advertising being profitable is just continuously dropping because less and less people are looking at ads, clicking at ads, reading ads. Is advertising gonna continue to be a viable model or is it just, hey, we're getting the name, we're getting our word out. This is a budget we've spent. We're showing that we're, you know, we've got skin in the game on the future of this product. Is it gonna, is it gonna get more effective? Are there ways to make it more effective? I think so, yes. And that's the most interesting part of the web advertising business group that's happening today at the World Wide Web Consortium. So with the end of the third party cookie, we really have the opportunity for web advertising to go in one of two directions. One is it becomes um, like the pessimists predict, it becomes crappier and crappier until everyone who can afford to turn off the ads just turns off the ads. Um, the other I'd say it's option, all <laughs> Yeah. The other option is that web advertising can recapture some of the best market design features of the kinds of ad media that have been sustainable in the past. So everyone sees ad rates on the web sort of decline over time, but in some media, the, um, the value of advertising is sustainable over time. Is it, which is there specific media where it's more sustainable? Magazines were really interesting um, because uh, even even though it's an extremely um, high overhead and low targetability medium, 
um, the magazine ad was able to hold its value for quite a while. And I think that's because of a sweet spot of uh, niche content and um, hard to fake uh, signaling power in that particular medium. But isn't that, isn't that basically what sort of web advertising on these niche sites is? Is basically this very similar to magazine advertising? It can be. It can be. If you, if you, um, if, if we can, if we can get the system tuned to move smoothly over from today's kind of commodity eyeball market to one in which those niche content creators have a sustainable value for their audience, then we can recapture some of the good features of magazine advertising without, of course, uh, having to accept the high overhead and high latency of uh, the underlying technology. But it's, it's something where, because it's all software, we have a tremendous number of options and uh, we have to consider very carefully where a particular software choice can result in different kinds of market opportunities. So would it make sense for SMEs to sort of hold back and wait until this stuff is settled or should they still just slur power forward and continue to run ads the way they've always been? I think that, that right now there's sort of a gold rush going on for first party data. And so everyone is anticipating that knowing your audience, knowing your customer list is going to be increasingly important because uh, with improved privacy technology and, uh, and changes in privacy regulation, um, you're not just going to be able to buy commodity eyeballs from uh, a fast market. So from the point of view of an SME now, the best thing you can be doing is get people engaged, get consent, um, have an up-to-date mailing list of people who you know are human and who you know have given genuine consent and interest in, in communicating with you. And that could be as simple as the buy nine sandwiches, get, ten, get the 10th sandwich free card. It could be a content marketing portal where people can log in to uh, make suggestions and, and read documentation and usage notes. It, it, really, it really comes down to uh, participating in the community of practice that your customers do and facilitating that community of practice enough that they want to um, let you know who they are and get some kind of a communication with you. Yeah. And 
of course, Bob Hoffman will say there is no brand love. People don't want to connect and share with brands. And that's absolutely right. I am not going to get on a message board every day and discuss Fruit of the Loom, even though I buy Fruit of the Loom products. Uh, but there are, there are opportunities to understand who's a, per who's a person who uses your stuff, what information do they want from you, and um, where are they willing to give consent? So if I were to start a founder, but the thing is, if I were to start a founder and I don't have anything, I don't have an audience, I don't have, no, I don't have anything. So the best way to do it is to just sort of like advertise like crazy and then gather as much first party data as possible and then build my list that way, as opposed to doing, doing it any other way. That would be the way now and in the future. Well, if you've made the, if you've made the leap to start up um, a new company, you've probably talked to some people who would be potential customers for that company. And so um, I know when, when uh, as a startup founder, you go talk to people and say, here's this business I'm thinking about doing. Uh, what, what do you think? Are you the kind of person who buys this kind of thing? Those are the kind of proto customers who are the, the seed of the list and the people who you start with to build that that uh, um, that customer list and uh, to understand what are the sites that customers and prospects actually read and what are they engaged with and where does it make sense for you to advertise? You shouldn't. You shouldn't need to run a complicated machine learning model to find what websites your customers are on because from the early stages, you would have been listening to them and reaching them where they are. Right, okay, so let's, let's jump into the future now. It's uh, 10 years, 2031. How has the how has this market changed? Well, the first big prediction that I want to um, go out on a limb for is that automated rating algorithms are no longer widely used as a way for people to shop for products. Um, people have figured that. Uh, the top rated product on a big retail site is probably the people is probably from the vendor that's best at gaming the rating system and not the best at actually making the thing. So people will yeah, the site remain nameless, right? You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I I just know there there are certain there are certain products like uh, printer cartridges, for example, where I have to drive to the store and buy them because you go online and check the ratings. Uh, the top rated ones are the people who are best at the rating system, not the people who are best at, uh, at uh, making a cartridge that fits a particular printer. Um, and that even, exactly. that even counts the, the listings that have the nice logo of uh, the printer brand on it. You can't can't you can't trust the damn thing and and that's 
that's not the kind of problem that's only going to get worse. And it's going to create opportunities for two kinds of uh, sources of um, product information. One is going to be customer communities that are run by, um, by brands that do have high engagement. Uh, King Arthur Flower is great at uh, building up a, a customer community and, and advice network. Uh, the other source of info on what kind of thing should I buy will be uh, more uh, buyer's guides from independent content creators. So instead of just jumping to a large retail site uh, to shop, you're probably going to visit a an independently maintained buyer's guide that might be uh, it might be on a .org site like consumer reports uh, it might be an individual blogger who says this is my go-to list of household tools or my recommended video conferencing setup for all price points or that kind of thing um, people people are going to get better at using those independent sources of uh, information on, on what's the best stuff to buy. And that's a, that's a big opportunity, frankly, for, uh, for independent bloggers and, and content creators. So will those, will those be brand sites? So would HP set that up? like you said, King Arthur Flower set that up or would be like just some some guy who happens to be interested in printer cartridges could set up printercartridgesrs.com and then just do review after review and then just have a community, a self-managed community of people who use these things as opposed to doing it through the, the retailer. I think it's going to be a mix. I think that there are there are some brands for which it makes sense to invest in content marketing um, there are some brands for which it makes more sense to not focus on your own content marketing, but to have uh, a program of uh, sending out review units for, um, for independent bloggers and review sites. Uh, they're going to be sites that have a mix. Um, it, really, it really depends on... Um, in, in a lot of cases, it can it can depend on the rise of a particular um, content personality. Somebody who comes out there and decides that um, I'm going to be the the Walt Mossberg of Zoom, home Zoom studios uh, could end up uh, shifting the whole market. Very cool. So, any other predictions for 2031? Um, I think that there's going to be, um, let me think about that for a minute. I think there, I think there's going to be a, um, a shift away from uh, some of the riskier kinds of online advertising. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Sleeping Giants uh, project or uh, a blogger who went by Spaco a while ago who um, who uh, collected clips of uh, 
of political radio shows to play back to those advertisers. Um, I think that brands have developed brand safety criteria for a reason. And, um, and the, the web advertising system has unfortunately not kept up very well with the needs of brands to appear in an environment that's that's considered uh, acceptable or or um, or uh, safe for all their users and so um, the the question of how do you decide which is an appropriate site or context for a brand to appear on is not going to be resolved by machine learning because the extreme or unsafe sites are going to be better at evading that kind of stuff than a lot of the more creative sites. Um, I think brands, brands are going to come up with better ways to, instead of starting from the concept of let's spew our ads on every social media page and every uh, possible site and then start playing whack-a-mole with the ones that that start beheading people or whatever um, that brands will start from well we know these are the sites that our employees read that our customers come in from so we'll start our ads there and then grow outward so brand Brand safety is not just a checklist item. I think it's a it's a reputation building item and a potential uh, big win for um, brands that do it right. It's really interesting. It sounds as if we need some kind of sort of heavy duty placement technology that can really use, I don't know, AI or whatever to be able to really determine because a lot of times you get bloggers who are like, okay, this article is fine. And this article is out to lunch, right? And it's overall great, but then the guy has a bad day and then posts something that's unsafe. I mean, is there is there a market or there should there be a market for, or is this like an interesting startup idea? Like come in, like design some more, some more you know, exacting requirements for, for placement? Um, I would be really cautious of throwing AI, AI at it from the beginning. Um, that's the approach that Facebook has taken with trying to uh, deal with the real mess that is Facebook pages. And um, it, it turns out that people who are determined to post heinous stuff online and are willing to burn through a bunch of accounts to do it can always beat um, AI coders who are resting investing in their Aeron shares at some big company. Um, AI is not the solution to brand safety. So uh, there's, there's a reputation network inherent in the um, relationships between customer facing employees and the customers. And so even if it's even if it's a local, um, 
even if it's a local business, there's going to be some kind of local news site or local blogs or, or um, other forums where that trusted network of sites is available. And um, the, the, a company that has a press list has a list of, of sites that they trust enough to send their press releases to. So there's, there's all kinds of trust network information already present in the business. That's a much more promising place to build on for brand safety than the approach of, well, let's see how, how smart we can be and code up a filter that, that uh, we can run every site in the world through. Right, but doesn't that doesn't that sort of cut you off because you've got this white list of sites that you're allowed on, but there could be other more other sites that are affected that are off the list, and you don't even know how to get to them. Well, but but any community of practice does um, this kind of stigmatic learning where it's it's like an ant colony where people who are members of that community will go wandering away looking for other interesting things to connect to. So. Like scouts. Healthy, so you have scouts I, out there who are looking for other other sites to whitelist. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So so a a brand that's widely used by a community of practice is going to have a network of blogs where they're willing to advertise. They might not be running an ad there right now, but they know you know this is a blog that's part of our community of practice um, or. This is a forum where one of our employees participates and we know it's a reasonable place. They may not post about work, but we, but we know that that's a place where the kind of people who shop at our business and, and interact with our employees can be found. Um, so the, 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 the whitelist the whitelist concept doesn't have to be a single monolithic whitelist that it's heavyweight to get onto. It can be a it can be a lightweight web of trust and and sites that that are on the edge can have some kind of a score. The PageRank patent expired last year. You could you could do a startup that does uh, a specific page rank for how closely related to our company's field and our company's values uh, this site is. That's, that's, that's actually a, a, a promising area to go down. If somebody's looking for a startup idea for placing ads, um, field, specific, uh, field specific slash brand safe uh, page rank clones for, for where is good to put our ads. That's a damn good idea. I didn't realize the PageRank patent had expired, so I'm I'm I might jump on that. So. Yeah, yeah, go for <laughs> Thanks it. Thanks for letting would, me know. I would I would totally use that. I would I would love to see a specific PageRank for uh, fields that I'm interested in. That um, hey, these are all the sites that are that are um, closely aligned to my area and that are brand safe with my uh, my company standards. 
Very cool. I'm definitely going to talk to my developer about that. So thanks so much. This has been very fascinating. I love it. I mean, this insights into your into the ad market is just insane. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Um, Twitter's always there. I'm, I'm D Marty on Twitter, um, and uh, uh, you can always get me at uh, D Marty at cafemedia.com too. Perfect. I'll set up all the contact information in the show notes with your bio and everything else. And uh, thank you so much. It's been great. Talk thank to you. Soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye.